Please welcome uh, Brother Tim up as he uh, shares uh, our session two word with us. We can turn the lights on, actually. Um, I like to actually see the audience I'm talking to. And uh, from the chatter, I heard eight hours wasn't exactly the average of sleep we got last night. Uh, so whether you got a little sleep or a lot, maybe some of you did get eight hours, and that's great. I'll be relying on you to keep your brothers and sisters awake through the rest of this session. No, I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll actually try to keep, uh, uh, keep you guys as energized and awake as possible. But uh, today we're actually going to be diving in to the theme verse for our, uh, for our talk. And um, like I said last night, uh, this is, um, if you see me looking at my phone, it's not because I'm checking notifications, it's because I'm keeping track of my time. Uh, I want to be cognizant of the fact that we have a schedule here. So um, just so you know, that's, that's what that's there for, because uh, I have my notes with me uh, on paper. But uh, today we're going to talk about the theme verse, which is uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, 14. So we're moving into the book of uh, 2 Corinthians. And one of the things that we did last night was we talked about why Paul was writing to the Corinthians in the first place. We talked about who the Corinthian church was. And the point I wanted, uh, the real point I wanted to drive home last night was there's a lot of common ground between the the Corinthian church of 2,000 years ago and the California cultural context we experience today. So that it should make what Paul is saying very relevant to us. It should, be the th- it should uh, really wake us up to the fact that we are swimming in a certain culture that affects us, and if we're not self-aware enough as individuals and as a church, it can start to uh, color our walk of faith to the extent that it pulls us away from Christ. And that was what Paul was coming back to as he closed out 1 Corinthians, was encouraging the church in Corinth to keep the main thing the main thing, major on the majors, focus on this the reality that there is a risen Lord. And so that's kind of where Paul ends 1 Corinthians. And as we run into 2 Corinthians, it's Paul writing back to the church sometime later. We, we're not quite sure what uh, amount of time has elapsed. And so as we look at this uh, particular passage, uh, we're going to start to get at what motivates Paul. Paul starts to unpack, or I guess not unpack, but be very transparent with the church in Corinth about why he does what he does. And I think that's where, where this theme verse and the theme for this retreat comes from, being compelled to love. That's kind of the driving force uh, behind Paul. And Paul's asking the question in Second Corinthians, what is driving us? What's driving you? Paul's seeking to address that question by explaining to the Corinthians what drives him. And what we're going to find is what drives him is the objective of his life. It's making Christ known. And so we're going to unpack what that looks like. Paul's writing to a church that is struggling to live as new believers, or I should say as young believers, as new creations. And, be, and they're working to understand what it means to be transformed into the image of Christ. And so Paul's trying to guide them through that. So with the help of God, my hope is that we're going to take three things away from this, uh, from this morning's session, because it won't be a proper sermon without three points, right? Uh, so, but there are three things, and uh, one of the things I want to look at is what motivates Paul. This is all going to be a talk about motivations. What motivates Paul? Why we 
can misunderstand Paul's motivation because this is a key point in 2 Corinthians. It's a key theme. It's Paul not just explaining his motivation to the Corinthians, but trying to explain it to them because they've misunderstood him. So what motivates Paul? Why can we often misunderstand that motivation? And then how can we begin to develop that motivation in our own lives? So we're going from kind of like the big picture context of last night to looking specifically at this discussion of motivation and what does it mean to be compelled by love. We're going to try to get our heads wrapped around the def- definition of that phrase, and we'll take that into the breakout. And then tonight, I'll try to get down to the nitty-gritty of what does that look like in real life? How do we unpack that in our daily grind? All right, so kind of that's how we're scaling this message. So let's talk about Paul's motivation here. I already spent a lot of time on context last night, so I'm not going to, I'll point to it a couple times, but just to note a couple of differences between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is kind of unique because it's Paul recommending himself to the Corinthians, which is kind of odd because he's already spent a couple years living there, establishing the churches. He's written them a lengthy letter. He's in regular contact with them. But the divisions that Paul was seeking to correct in 1 Corinthians seem to have persisted, but they've changed. So remember, Paul was writing to address divisions in the first letter to the Corinthians, and one of those divisions was this division between people who were like, hey, we're all free in Christ, we can do whatever we want, like, woo, right, just... No holds barred. And then other people were just like, no, we're following Christ. It has to be done this exact way. There was these extremes of how they were going about trying to understand what it meant to live in the light of, um, of being redeemed. And Paul was trying to correct that. And one of the big issues that he was addressing were issues of sexual immorality in the church. So as he gets into the early chapters, he references this, uh, this particular division, this particular, I guess, uh, brother in the Lord who had been disciplined by the church and who is now being restored to the church. So he gives some instructions on that uh, in, chapters, uh, in chapter 2 and going into chapter 3. He's trying to uh, kind of like restore or give instructions on how to restore someone who's been alienated as a result of these divisions. But what is coming to the fore as he moves into chapter 5 is this discussion of, okay, it seems like some good progress was made. So that's the encouraging point about 2 Corinthians. Paul's saying, hey, you guys have made progress. I am happy to hear corrections were made as a result of my first letter. But some of the divisions remain. So Paul has this desire to kind of say, all right, now that we've kind of got some of these basics going, we need to address a couple things because some of the divisions are healed, but there's one really big division. And that division is between those people who took 1 Corinthians to heart and made the necessary changes that Paul asked them to make and those who didn't. And those who didn't have shifted their criticism of Paul. And now their criticism of Paul has become personal. It's not them no longer saying, hey, uh, we want to do Christianity this way. They've shifted their attack and said, Paul individually as a personal um, representative of the church is not qualified. So Paul has to kind of trot out his resume in this book, and this is why he starts to talk about what motivates him. So why is he being attacked? What's, uh, what's going on here? There's three main attacks, because there's always three, right? Rule of three. Uh, there's three main attacks that these critics of Paul are leveling at him, and they're almost all personal. They criticize him because he's not a true philosopher. He's an artisan, and by artisan we just mean he's a tradesman, 
right? They, if you go back to the book of Acts, we find that Paul is a tent maker. That's his business. And that's one of the ways he funded his ministry. He had a largely self-funded ministry. And uh, that really clashes with the uh, philosophical tradition of ancient uh, of the ancient Greco-Roman world. See, in ancient Greece, if you were a philosopher, you traveled from city to city teaching. And what the way you demonstrated that you were a quality teacher was if people paid you. People paid to be taught by you. You didn't have to work for yourself. And so if Paul's sitting there making tents, these guys are going, he must not be a good philosopher because no one's paying him. Right? That's the attack. That's only one, though. The other attack is, well, if he's not a very good philosopher because no one pays him, he must not have an intellectual pedigree. That degree, I don't know. Is it from an accredited college? Not sure. Because there was a form of accreditation here. I'm not, I'm not just making that joke for, because that's language we understand. There's, there's, uh, there's a form of accreditation in the uh, Greco-Roman world, too. See, the schools of philosophy in the Greek and Roman worlds all had kind of like their, uh, their leaders, right? The school of Plato, uh, the school of Aristotle, the Stoic school, the Epicurean school, the Sophist school. And philosophers kind of trotted out their pedigrees when they were at a new city saying, my name is so-and-so and I was taught by so-and-so. Who was taught by so-and-so? Who's... They would trot out this kind of uh, intellectual family tree to demonstrate their credibility and establish their authority. And so people are pointing at Paul, these Corinthian detractors, these Corinthian critics are pointing at Paul saying, hey, what authority does he have? He doesn't have any pedigree. Now, Paul will get to that later in this book, actually. He does try out that he does have a pedigree. But even he says later in 2 Corinthians, this is foolishness. I'm only doing it because you're demanding it. I'm only doing it, actually, he says, I'm doing it because I love you guys. I'm kind of playing along with that. But don't think that this matters, right? So he kind of has to refer back to some of the stuff he discussed in 1 Corinthians. And then the third and final line of attack that this group is using against Paul is he's preaching an un-Greek idea. It's like this guy is not Greek enough. He doesn't behave like a Greek philosopher. He doesn't have an intellectual pedigree from any of the Greek philosophical schools. And he's preaching an un-Greek idea. And that idea is this resurrection. The resurrection was actually an idea that uh, Greek philosophers just kind of denied. Like, this, that's not how this stuff works. Greek philosophers, especially people like Plato, actually were willing to consider that there was a God above all things. There was a one creator God, but they stopped short of saying that there was such a thing as a creator God who was personal, a creator God who would enter into time and space. So this idea of a redemptive savior who was divine and who died and rose again and promised that that was, and that promise was for all of his followers as well, that's something that rubbed Greek philosophy the wrong way. And so that's where Paul's critics are going. That's the attack. And so that's where Paul starts to explain, let me tell you why I do what I do. Paul's writing this letter as essentially a cover letter and resume, a mission statement, which actually was a specific genre of ancient literature. So in a way, he's kind of trolling his critics, right? On the one hand, they're saying he doesn't know what he's doing. And he's like, well, I have complete command of your language and literature, guys. Just watch this. Right? So it's kind of amusing on that level. But again, that's not the main focus. The main focus is why does Paul do what he does? 
And 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15 uh, get to that. And we can put it up here on the, on the projector. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15. Let me actually refer to it. My Bible here. It says this. Paul says, for the love of God controls us, or some uh, translation says compels us. The love of God compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If we could encapsulate, and I was, this morning as I was reviewing my notes, I was kind of reading through that to chapter 6, and before that in chapters 4 and 5. And i got to tell you, Paul has a much bigger discussion of what's motivating him, but if we can condense it down, it's getting at this. This is what motivates Paul. This is what controls, compels Paul. I love the second song that uh, Jerry and his team sang. They had that line of uh, saying that, um, you can correct my quotation here, but that uh, the king is the wind in our sails, the fire in our veins, right? Paul's getting at that idea here. This is what controls me. Literally, this is the wind in my sails. This is what drives me forward and pushes me into doing the things I do. But let's make sure that we understand the progression of thought that Paul's giving here because it's important. First off, one died for all. That meant in Jesus' death, we also all have symbolically, spiritually, in a way, died in some fashion, died for some purpose. What? Oh, we've died to sin. We've died to the uh, controlling power of it. We've died to the, uh, the temptations and wiles of the world. In Jesus' death, we too have symbolically died to that. So in other words, our pre-Christ selves died to the world and died to sin. But, and this is why the resurrection is so important, Jesus rose. If Jesus just died... And that symbolic death was kind of like, okay, well, then we died to sin. Where do we go from there? That's the promise of the resurrection. So we get to, uh, we get to verse 15. And he died for all that those who, might, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So this idea of it, you can't just say Jesus died for our sins. It's like, yes, but that's only half the equation. That is only part of it. Jesus died for our sins so that they may be forgiven. We might be redeemed from him. But he rose again so that we could live free from those sins. That is huge. It's one thing to say my sins are forgiven. That's amazing enough that God would shed that kind of mercy and grace on us. But to think that in resurrection, we too have been raised with Christ to something new, something greater, something better, should be mind-blowing. And that's what Paul's getting at here. He's like, if you want to know what motivates me, if you want to know what compels me to love and minister the way I do, it's that. This is a new creation we're talking about. And so, how should, what should this do for how we live? Well, first, we should recognize that there's a debt of gratitude here. This should overwhelm us with thanks that a merciful God would, would just do so much for us. 
That should change how we think. That should change our priorities. All of a sudden, that should just blow our minds and alter our world. But our response to live in this newness of life should also be a sign of love. It should change how we worship. Right? It should change how we engage in times of worship. It should be, it should be welcomed. It should be almost something that we're eager for because how, how many lifetimes do we need to express this thanks? To express this newness of life? We're going to need an eternity for it. But I think even more subtly, but very importantly, this is also an accurate depiction of reality. This is something Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians, but he, and he addresses more in the rest of 2 Corinthians. But it's this idea of telling his critics, you are looking at the lowest shadowy level of reality. You need to look at this higher, more glorious reality that we are new creations. That there is a higher calling than just, do I have the right pedigree? Am I supporting myself in ministry or not? Like that, that is the lowest level of comprehension is kind of what Paul's suggesting here. This is a new reality. So when we get to this phrase at the end of verse 15, Christ died and rose for all, this is more than just quibbles over Paul's CV, right? The resurrection reality, uh, according to Keener, a theologian who wrote a rather large commentary on this book, he has this phrase that he says, this resurrection reality plays an anticipatory role in ministry. I like this idea of an anticipatory role. In other words, Paul's saying the fact that there's a resurrection and that there's a promise of a resurrection drives me forward into ministry anticipating that God is, about, is working powerfully and I don't have time to make sure my resume is properly formatted for you. This is a bigger deal. This is a more exciting thing. In other words, this is, um, this is empowering Paul's ministry. It's the love of God in the death and resurrection of Christ that, and Paul's awareness of God's love for him that's moving him towards his fellow, uh, fellow human beings to express the same truth, to express the same glories. And this becomes really important when we kind of then... Uh, tie back into the context of Corinthians and the culture that, uh, and the culture that Paul was speaking to. I, I want to kind of just refresh us a little bit on this because remember that Paul is dealing with this cultural milieu that's very self-centered. He's, he's dealing with this, these groups of individuals who are really struggling with this idea of, of self-aggrandizement, making themselves the best self possible today at the expense of others. A very, it, like basically improving self in a very unloving way. Paul's trying to communicate to the Corinthians in these verses, not just his motivation, but he's also trying to tell them that instead of just being Corinthians, they're not just that anymore. They're new creations in Christ. That means, that means they no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was risen, rose uh, and for who was raised again, right? That's what you're living for now. You're not necessarily just living for yourself. And I think that's where we start to think about, uh, that's where we start to move towards this idea of why it's so easy for the Corinthians and I think for ourselves to misunderstand Paul's motivation. It's because 
it's very easy and tempting to, uh, to be focused on ourselves. It's very easy and tempting to be uh, focused on self-aggrandizement and self-advancement. We do live in a culture that is about advancing selves, advancing career, advancing, um, advancing our position. And Paul's speaking from a, uh, is speaking from a place of profound humility in light of God's grace in his life. And that's a humility that's very difficult to grasp, especially in the day-to-day movements of life. Because we're inclined to, to these temptations too. We're inclined to be tempted by the criticisms of the world when they say things like, well, this Christianity thing isn't real philosophy. Real academics don't believe this. I don't know if you guys have heard some of these criticisms of Christianity, but I have. Um, one of the things that really amuses me is when I do uh, listen to non-Christians speak about uh, Christianity and Christian theology. Um, I shouldn't say it's amusing. It's more like it's something that always strikes me as we haven't come that far from Paul's day because these criticisms are still leveled against the people of God. This idea of that's not real philosophy. That's not real like academically challenging stuff. It's not scientific right? Uh, they'll, they'll say things like that. And against such cultural scorn, I think there is a certain temptation as Christians to, uh, to start thinking about the gospel in ways of like, well, can't we dress it up a little bit? Can't, do we need to brand the gospel? Do we need to make it relevant? Right? Now, it's not to say, now, don't get me wrong here. Paul was a very culturally, socially aware person who did a very good job of making sure he spoke the language effectively or spoke the gospel effectively into the context in which he was in. So there is absolutely a need to be contextually aware of where we live in order to present the gospel effectively. However, we should be mindful of what I I like to call the relevance trap, right? Because in getting, if making the gospel relevant becomes the focus, my fear is we start to rob the gospel of its power. We start to think that the gospel can only persuade, the gospel can only do its work if people, uh, if, if it's made relevant enough, if it's branded correctly, and we, we, we remove the Holy Spirit's convicting power from the equation. That's not to say that there's not, a, like I said, there's not, it's not to say that there's not a place for thinking constructively about how to present the gospel to um, the unbelieving world. There's serious work that needs to be done there. And also, it's not to say that there's no place for something like the arts and making the gospel appear beautiful, but it's a mistake to think that the gospel is insufficient without those things. And that is the key point here. And that's the key point Paul's trying to make. So he'll trot out his resume in the latter half of 2 Corinthians. He'll say, I do all these things. I check all your boxes. But there's a reason he puts this, the gospel, the reality of a resurrection promise first. Because that is first. That comes first. That should be first. Paul's response to these questions of, you know, is it philosophically relevant? Is it stamped with the proper school's seal of approval? His response to his Corinthian critics is, does it really need to be? When you really sit and think of what the gospel means and what the reality of the resurrection entails, does it really need that kind of approval? 
Paul's suggesting that the attacks on his, of his, on his character, the attacks on his methodology or his lack thereof, uh, he's suggesting to his critics that this is betraying a lack of awareness of just how deeply transformative the reality of a living Christ is. He's saying, you, if you are focused on this, whole, this worldly level of labels and pedigree, you have missed the fact that Christ has changed you, that you are new, and that you do not need to live beholding to these standards any longer. And by extension, Paul's saying, you're, you're measuring me by the wrong standard. You're measuring yourselves by the wrong standard. It's like he's asking him, don't you even understand what it means to be alive in Christ? Do you know what he's done for you? Have you even begun to fathom that? Ultimately, Paul's trying to get, convey this idea that I am this way and I approach you, my brothers and sisters, with this kind of love that looks so crazy and radical to you because this is who I am. I, I'm not in it. Like, he's really trying hard to persuade the Corinthians. I am not in this for selfish gain. As crazy as that might seem to you, I'm not in it for the money. I'm not in it for the prestige. I'm not in it for the reputation. I'm in it for Christ. I'm in it because he's changed me. He, I, was, I mean, in Paul's case, it was fairly dramatic. He was a murdering thug. He was. And now he's, he's someone who actually understands what it means to be loved to the degree that he can love others from variety, uh, a variety of walks of life, from a variety of backgrounds. He's beginning to comprehend the riches of the love of God. And it's overwhelming to him. It's blowing his mind. He's like, I, I'm sorry, guys. Like, if this is what's reality... I don't see how we can worry about this other stuff. This is the biggest and most important thing. In a way, Paul is saying, I'm being absolutely consistent with my new character. Paul is acting out of integrity of heart. Uh, let me see if I have time for this quote, because it's a good one. Okay, we're good. Um, John Maxwell, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with him. He's a pastor, uh, speaker, writer, written a lot of books on leadership and stuff like that. And when he talks about leadership, he actually talks a lot about integrity. And listen to how he describes integrity here. Integrity is not what we do so much as who we are. And who we are in turn determines what we do. So it's kind of interesting how he's flipping an equation. A lot of times people be, uh, we try to define people by what they do, not by who they are. And Maxwell's suggesting that integrity requires flipping the equation a little bit. Our system of values is so much a part of us, we cannot separate it from ourselves. It becomes the navigating system that guides us. It establishes priorities in our lives and judges what we will accept or reject. Excuse me. We are all faced with conflicting desires. No one, no matter how spiritual, can avoid this battle, this battle of conflicting desires. Integrity is the factor that determines which one will prevail. We struggle daily with situations that demand decisions between what we want to do and what we ought to do. Integrity establishes the ground rules for resolving these tensions. 
And then Maxwell goes on to note that integrity results in a solid reputation, not just an image. Paul's trying to get this idea of integrity across to the Corinthians. Integrity results in a solid reputation, not just an image. He's telling his Corinthian critics, you are very focused on my image right now. And that is not the discussion we should be having. The discussion we should be having is the fact that we are new creations in Christ. We have the promise of resurrection. We have been given a great commission. We should be about that work. So what are we going to do about it? Jesus is, I'm, Paul's argument is basically based on this. If Jesus died so I may live, and I've died to sin to follow Jesus, my life should look like I've died to sin. That's the simplicity of Paul's statement uh, about living in light of this resurrection reality. Jesus died so I could live. That is freaking amazing. My life should look like that. My life should look like I'm amazed by the fact that Christ died for me. And so the question becomes, is this reality of Christ's death and resurrection, is that the source of our integrity? Is that the, the compass by which God, that, would, that guides our lives? Is that what we live in reference to? I'll be the first one to acknowledge that is not an easy thing to do. Most days, that is not what I live in reference to. And it's challenging and humbling to confront that, especially when I have to stand up here and talk about it. Right? Because... But, I, but I, I would be a fraud if I didn't say that. Because it's, in, it's important to recognize that even as this is absolutely how we should be thinking about our value system and thinking about the direction of our lives and the motivating forces in our lives, we also need to recognize the difficulty of it, the struggle of it. As Maxwell talks about, there's this daily conflict between what we want to do and what we ought to do or, or what we want to reach for versus what we ought to reach for. Paul's calling us to reach for the higher thing, reach for the better thing, right? Going back to last night, reach for that more excellent way because Christ died and rose again. That's the whole idea. And because Christ died and rose again, Paul's also going to go on to talk about we can bear the costs that come with reaching for that higher thing at the expense of these lower things like prestige and uh, worldly pursuits. Paul's basic response is, how do we begin, or why do we even need to dress up something so glorious as a resurrected Christ? That is a challenging question for me. Because as someone who uh, teaches people public speaking, as someone who likes to, be, uh, to speak, as someone who likes to write these types of messages... The temptation is real for me to dress this up. Even this morning, I was cutting out, as I kind of like had to wrestle with that, I was like, I should cut out that pop culture reference. That's just, that's just dress up stuff. I don't need that. Uh, because I, don't, I would not want it to detract from the thrust of Paul's message here. And I think sometimes, and the deeper question is here, and this is what really uh, hit me this morning as I was thinking about this, is I wonder if our need to dress up the gospel is because we don't perceive it as a beautiful reality. Maybe it's a nice story. Maybe it's that thing we felt once. Is it a reality in our lives? A reality such that it organizes our priorities 
a reality such that it drives us to make choices that would work against us. To choose to give time and resources to people at our expense. That's a challenging thing to consider. And as I thought about this approach to dressing it up the gospel, admittedly it's easier to do than all those other things. It's easier to do than the hard work of learning to love people. But then I started thinking about, well, what's the problem with dressing up the gospel too much? Well, one, it's distracting. Secondly, I think it misplaces authority. Going back to what I said earlier, it, be, it starts to make us think that somehow the gospel needs our effort. The gospel needs our, um, our beautification efforts. And so as a result, it loses its authoritative power in our lives. Ultimately, I think it can become a form of idolatry uh, in a weird way, because we're still talking about the gospel, right? But we're not. We're talking about how we improve the gospel. That's a, that's a making ourselves the reference point, not Christ. The bottom line Paul's trying to get to is that if we're to develop the same motivation, this motivation of being compelled by Christ to reach out to others and love them, this gospel of Christ dying for us and rising again that we may have newness of life, that has to have its transformative work here in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds first. It has to be there first on a daily basis. It's not just a one-time thing. That's where it starts. But then there's this thing called sanctification that lasts a lifetime. And it keeps working on us and transforming us. One of the things I like about Paul here is I think he's trying to get at this idea that C.S. Lewis would eventually coin the term as being mere Christianity. I think he's starting to get at that. He's calling the Corinthian believers to be merely Christian. Don't be Christian with this intellectual pedigree. Don't be Christian who lives here. Don't be Christian who has this kind of church size. Don't be Christian who you know, is of Paul, of Apollos, or of Cephas to apply his um, discussion from 1 Corinthians. Just be Christian. Because that's a glorious enough tag. That's a glorious enough label. That really means something. Child of God. Redeemed sinner. Someone with the hope of resurrection. I mean, I don't know of any other, like, set of letters after my last name that can communicate that kind of stuff. Right? That's amazing things. Paul's suggesting that if we're going to live in light of the gospel, let's not get sucked into these pedestrian concerns of the world, these pedestrian divisions along you know, denominational or leadership lines. This isn't to say being merely Christian is an easy thing. As I, as I said, it's, it's tempting and often easier to dress up the gospel rather than to live it out. It's easier uh, to do that. It's easier to schedule our times of worship than it is to actually extend forgiveness to someone who's offended us. It's easier to, uh, to you know, greet people at church than it is to, oh, I don't know, um, 
try to be patient with my little girl when she's trying my patience, right? Because she's a toddler running all over the place, and sometimes she just has way more energy than I have, right? It, living out the gospel in those types of day-to-day interactions is much, much harder. Being merely Christian is not easy, but it's enough. Paul's saying it's enough because of the hope of resurrection. That's what he's going for here. If we're, a willing, if we're willing to allow the Holy Spirit to work on our lives, to work on that transformative work of making us more and more into the image of Christ, then we're going to be understanding and moving towards what it actually means to be compelled to love. That's where we get to the point where the love comes out almost in reaction to what's around us. And that's kind of what Paul's driving at here. So what do we take away from this? One of the things I, I thought about a lot is, uh, again, this is a, one of those interesting points that makes the Corinthian world seem very similar to our California world, is that the Corinthian detractors were ascribing false motivations to Paul. And I feel like we live in a culture that likes to do that. Someone does something, something shows up on social media or something, and we immediately want to say, like, oh, I know why that person did that. Right? We want to immediately ascribe motivation to people. And I think there's a danger in doing that, not just because we can misunderstand that person and what they're doing, and so that's not very loving, but it's also we excuse ourselves from assessing our own motivations. Because if I know what your motivation is, that implies that I've got my motivations pretty well defined. I know me well enough to know you. Yeah, sure we do, right? So in explaining his motivation for ministry, I think Paul's challenging us to consider our motivations for ministry. Paul is someone who does have a clearly defined motivation for ministry. It's not to say that he lives it out perfectly all the time. I'm sure he'd be the first one to admit that. But he at least understands what is to be driving him. He at least is the one who's critically self-assessing his motivation and thinking it through. His question is, are we doing the same thing? And so like last night, I have a series of questions for you guys. I think I got one up here uh, on the slide next. It, um, when we ask the question of, are we compelled to love, we should consider if, if our being compelled to love is a compulsion born out of our awareness of Christ's atoning death and resurrection, or is it a compulsion born out of legalist ought-tos and social pressures? Paul's suggesting that the motivations of his Corinthian detractors are out of those legalist ought-tos and social pressures, and that's not love. That's not directing people towards the gospel. That's not reflecting the resurrection reality. So when we talk about being compelled to love, and we're talking about our motivations, we have to talk about what is driving them. There's a lot of ways we can do that. I mean, we can talk about that in your breakout sessions, but I, I, I decided to jot down a couple of kind of like gut check questions. Here's the first one. How do you respond to your enemies? Right, just gut check that. When I, when I am interacting with someone I dislike, not just momentary disagreements with your friends, because they're your friends, right, and you've learned to work through those, but I mean, when you interact with someone you don't like, or someone who has hurt you in some way. What's your reaction? 
This is something Jesus talked about quite a bit. Not just the fact that he commands us to love our enemies, but he even goes so far as to say, like, hey, look, everybody can love the people who are close to them. I mean, if you're doing that, good. Please do that. Keep doing that. But don't think that makes you special. Don't think that 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 defines you as living in light of resurrection reality. If you can pray, if you can pray for, forgive, seek the good of those you dislike or oppose to, or who will dislike and are opposed to you, that's a good sense that you're moving in the right direction. And I, I'm not saying just like you were able to do it one time. Is this something that is generally characterizing your life as a disciple of Christ? That when you run into conflict with people, that you react viscerally negatively to individuals, does it draw out a certain response where you actually do seek their good in some way? That's a good spot. It's not to say that we've all done it perfectly. I'm sure all, all of us in this room need to work on this one. Right? It's not to say that because you don't do it perfectly, you're not living in light of the resurrection. It's just to say, like, this is a good place to start, I think. Second gut check. How do you respond when you're confronted with the needs of your community? Now, it's easy here to immediately think at the global level, right? Let, let's keep it right down here to Jericho Road. Or even go further, your own home, right? When you are confronted with the needs of your community at every level, but start small, start local, how do you respond? Do you double down on your own needs and desires? Is it a, yeah, I know, but... Are you inclined to enter into prayer about those situations? Uh, one of the areas I've been uniquely challenged in this um, over the last several months is, one, again, in the context of my own home, is just parenting. My goodness, I'm sure every parent in this room understands the sacrifice and the giving that comes with raising children, especially if you're trying to do it well, right? That's hard. And, there's, and you have to say no to yourself a lot. So for those of you who are farther along in parenthood than I am, blessings and keep going. That's encouragement to me. <laughs> I'll be standing at some point, right? At the end of it all. So I've had to adopt this posture. And it's incredible like how much internal selfishness I've been surprised to realize I still have going on in my heart. Like, holy cow, I thought I was doing pretty good on that, but no, right? And so God's really been using that to say like, hey, Tim, you're still pretty selfish in these areas. You've got to work at this. Another area in going into my local community is, uh, as I'm sure most of you have noticed with Orange County, homelessness has been a big discussion over the last few years. It's been a spiking problem. And, I've, and Fullerton, uh, where I live, uh, has seen its fair share of it. Uh, and I got to tell you, it was, I'd say up to about maybe a year and a half ago, it was something I would generally look the other way on, mostly because I just didn't know how to respond. And God really convicted me of that, where I, had to, where I had to stop and say, like, God, you need to change my heart here. How am I supposed to respond to something that I don't feel like I can fix, that I don't even feel like I have time to give to, but yet I still need to respond to? How do I respond in light of who I am as a child of God? It started with prayer, so don't discount prayer in thinking through these things. Often our, when we are confronted with a need in a community, our reaction is like, we've got to do something, right? 
yeah, the first and best thing you can do is probably start praying. Unfortunately, I think often we think that if we've prayed, that's enough. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But let's at least start with prayer. Because in that, that's where we can start praying for that transformative work of the Spirit to say, God, you need to help me respond well. God, I want to make sure I respond in such a way that the reality of the resurrection of Christ and his death on our behalf is present to the people I'm ministering and reaching out to. Like, let's make sure my motivations are going in the right direction as I start to respond to these needs. That's why prayer is so essential here. So those are two things uh, you, can, uh, you can do to kind of like gut check uh, where we are in this discussion of motivations and what it means to be compelled to love. So finally, and I'll, I'll end here. As we go into the breakout sessions, I was reflecting on maybe some questions that could be thought of or you could address or discuss. Obviously, your groups are going to go in the discussions that directions that um, the Lord leads. But to get us there, here are a few. What might be keeping us from experiencing this compulsion to love? And again, not just to love, but to love because he first loved us to love because we are new creations, because we have a promise of resurrection, right? What might be getting in our way there? And why is that, whatever that is, getting in our way? And once we've identified that or started to, what needs to be done about it? At the individual level, at the family level, at the church level? You know, when I... In preparing a series of talks like this on being compelled to love, I think the easy thing would be to encourage you guys to reach out to your community, right? Immediately just go get, into, get to work, get to action. Engage the homeless, minister to refugees, something like that. All good and necessary things, don't get me wrong. And we will talk about those types of things in our next session. But what good is any of that, any of it, if we don't have the love of Christ operating in us? if we don't have the convicting work of the Holy Spirit transforming our natures and shaping us into the image of Christ so that we can be those effective ambassadors as we go out and address those needs. Paul's asking his Corinthian detractors or telling them, the love of Christ compels me. So the real question is, is it compelling you? And that's, I think, the challenging part of today's message. So as we go to break out, let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll finish up. Heavenly Father, there is so much work we need to do. I think if we're just honest with ourselves for a few seconds, we can be overwhelmingly aware of our imperfections, of how far short we fall of what you call us to, of how far short we fall of loving well, But God, you have redeemed us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In Christ, we are a new creation, dead to sin, alive to you, our God. And so in light of that reality, renew our hearts. Renew our minds, our souls. Strengthen our bodies for the work you would call us to do, to be your ambassadors to this dark and hurting world to be your ambassadors to our families, to our co-workers, to be your ambassadors and your hands and feet of mercy, even to our brothers and sisters here at Jericho Road. 
God, there's much work to do. There is a rich harvest out there, and you have given us the incredible opportunity to be a part of it. So guys, we go to breakout sessions. May your Holy Spirit be working on all of us individually, as a group, as a congregation. May your Holy Spirit be doing his transformative work to shape us into that image of Christ. And may the love of Christ that so richly blesses and renews us be that which compels us and pushes us towards loving the world. And may the world take notice of that. May the world recognize that there is something qualitative differently about how Jericho Road loves than how they might understand love themselves. In Jesus' name, amen.